We are continuing our study through the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. And so I just want to read the first three verses for us. We'll continue to look at our understanding, our calling in Christ Jesus. Reading God's Word, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sophonists to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who are in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. You know, it was the great missionary of the 19th century, C.T. Studd. He was a wonderful missionary to China and Africa. He said this, Some want to live within the sound of the church or the chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I think this was the philosophy of the Apostle Paul, that he wanted to run a rescue shop. He wanted to plant a church within a yard of hell. Because when he went to Corinth, probably the most vile, wicked, defiled city of its time, I think that's what it was. His desire was to plant a church there. God led him to do that, to establish a church within a yard of hell. And the more I read this book, the more I see how Wonderfully, it applies directly even to us as a local church right here in Redwood City. You know, we live in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area, probably one of the most wicked, one of the most defiled, one of the most wretched regions of our United States of America. We live right here. I call it the belly of the beast. (laughs) And yet God has planted this church. God has called us to be salt, to be light into the darkness into which we live daily. And we never want to forget that. We don't want to relax in our armchairs of grace because we are living a stone's throw from people who are destined to hell, who desperately need to hear the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we've seen a couple things in our study so far. We've seen the church. It's the called out ones, those who are called out from the world, gloriously saved by God. We looked at the universal church. We looked at the local church. We saw how Paul calls it not the church of Corinth or the Corinthian church, but he calls it the church of what? Of God. See, every true church is built upon God. Every true church is built upon the foundation that God has laid down through the apostles' doctrine, through their teaching. And that's what Paul does here in the very, very first verse, called by the will of God to be an apostle. He says, if there's going to be a church in Corinth, it's going to have to be established upon the foundation of the apostles, upon their teaching, upon their doctrine. 
Obviously, Christ is the chief cornerstone of the church. He is the head of the church. But as a pastor, this is not my church. As elders, this is not our church. As a congregation, this isn't our church. It's God's church. And we need to be reminded of that. We have to remind ourselves that as a church, we're not free to reinvent the way church happens. We're not free as a church to be a maverick church, to go do things that are outside the confines of God's word. God has given us everything we need to know how to do church. And the glorious thing is it's actually, most of it is in this book that we're studying together, 1 Corinthians. There's no maverick churches in God's plan. He says, you need to conform to the way I tell you to do church. And it's within our hearts and the hearts of the leadership here to guard the gates of this church from the wisdom of man. From the ways of the world. That's what we're called to do. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 5, 4 and 5, Paul writes this, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. What was the mystery of Christ? The church. The idea that Jews and Gentiles could come together in one body. He says in verse 5, Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generation, generations, as it has now been revealed to who? His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. See, everything that we do in church, everything in the life of this church, it has to be brought into alignment with the foundation that has been laid down through the apostles, through the New Testament church. Everything we believe, everything we teach, every ministry that we pursue must be built squarely upon the foundation of the apostles. Because as we sang this morning, all other ground is what? Sinking sand. Sinking sand. We're not seeking to be relevant. We're not seeking to change the way God has told us in his word to do church just so that the world can look at us and say, wow, I can feel comfortable there. We want to be true to our calling as a church. Well, we also saw the consecration that we looked at. It said those sanctified in Christ Jesus, sanctified there means to separate. We talked in depth about that. It's in the perfect tense. It means uh, something that completed and was started at a point in time, and then it continues with present day results. It was also in the passive voice means that we can't sanctify ourselves. Somebody else has to sanctify us. When you begin to separate and sanctify yourself, a lot of times that ends up in legalism. Being legalistic about things. No, it's God who separates us. It's God who sanctifies us. Holiness in the positional sense is not a matter of good works, of holy living. Holiness is a matter of righteous standing before God. And we saw that. We looked at that. That's the idea of justification. When we are saved, God justifies us. 
That's a point in time. But it has ongoing ramifications. It has ongoing results. So if you can picture in your mind a dot in your life when you were saved, that's when you were justified. And then a line going forward. That line is called sanctification. The process of God conforming us into the image of his son. Last week, we looked at the call, called to be saints, he says. Not just sanctified, but called to be saints. We are saints in Christ Jesus. The saints are not some icon hanging on a wall or a statue that needs to be kissed. We are saints. We are set apart. We are holy ones in Christ If consecration speaks of our position before God, we are set apart. Sanctification talks about our walk with God. Talks about our practice before God. Because true sanctification, according to Scripture, is the process of God conforming, transforming your life into what he wants it to be. It's God's transforming work in your life. And that begins when you are saved. We looked at the three stages of sanctification. Positional sanctification happens at a point in time in the past when we are justified. That's when we are freed from the punishment of sin. Do you know that the moment you put your faith, your trust in Christ, the moment you came to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you no longer had to be worried that you were going to be punished by God for anything? That God forgave you of all your sins, past, present, future, That's our justification, our right standing. God declares us to be right before him. Not because of something in us. God doesn't look down and say, oh, there's a good one. I can justify him. Doesn't work that way. He says, I'm going to justify you in spite of yourself. I'm going to justify you because of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's positional sanctification. That's setting apart at a point in time by God. And then secondly, there's progressive sanctification. This is what goes on in our life every day of our Christian lives. If you've come to Christ, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior here today, you have the Holy Spirit of God that lives within you. And that Holy Spirit of God continues to convict you, continues to conform you into the image of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a daily practice. It frees us from the power of sin. As a Christian, for the first time in your life, you have the power over sin at your available. It's available to you, the power over sin. See, that's why the Bible says that, it says don't get drunk with wine. Don't be controlled by something like that. Be controlled by what? The Holy Spirit of God, Ephesians tells us. Be filled. The idea of filling is being controlled by. So that frees us from the power of sin. And then the third thing we looked at last week was eternal sanctification. It has to do with something in the future. Some people call this perfecting sanctification. If you're into P's, positional, progressive, perfecting. It has to do with our glorification. This is something that God does to us. He glorifies us. One day we will be freed from the presence of sin. When will that be? When we receive our glorified body. Either we die or the Lord comes back and we go to be with him. Until that time, guess what? 
You're stuck in a body that is drawn to sin. You're stuck in a body that just longs for sin. You're stuck in a world that bombards you daily with sin. That's why the Christian life is called a battle. It's a struggle. You don't just get saved and waltz through the roses to heaven. That's why the New Testament uses words like a soldier to depict a Christian. Even looking at some of the pictures on that video of soldiers, you realize, well, that's not an easy life. Just the fact that you can't take a shower every day would irritate me. (laughs) I couldn't deal with that. But it's a tough road. Or it talks about being a farmer. I mean, all those words depict hard work. We don't have the the privilege of just sitting back in the armchairs of grace and say, well, Jesus saved me. I guess I'll just relax now and do absolutely nothing. It doesn't work that way. But one day we will be completely glorified. We will be made like him. What a wondrous thing to look forward to. As Christians, we should live holy lives. But listen, holy living does not make us holy. (laughs) Do you understand that? You can go to church. You can pray before your meals in restaurants in front of everybody. You can help the poor. You can do all that stuff. That doesn't make you holy. The only thing that makes you holy is when God declares you to be holy. When God sets you apart. So we're going to pick up today in our message, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're about to begin to get a little deeper into the understanding of our calling in Christ. And, you know, as I was studying this past week, I couldn't help but just look at these verses and say, you know what? Paul is a genius. I mean, he's a genius. Yeah, he's, he's inspired by the word or by the God, by God as in the Holy Spirit as he's writing these words. But just as a teacher, he's a genius because he lays out this argument right out of the gate that, first of all, this is built upon God's authority, not mine. And then he basically begins to talk about the glorious power of the gospel. And he uses himself and his helper, Sophonis, as examples, as trophies of God's grace to hold up in front of the Corinthian church to say, look. There's hope. Look at what God has done in our life. And that's what Paul does here. And so let's look at the call of Paul. He says right there, called by the will of God. I know you think, wait, is he starting this book over? No, I just want to bring this out for you so you see what I saw. I think if there's ever been an unlikely candidate to become a pastor, to become an apostle, to become a, a, a servant of the Most High God, it was Saul of Tarsus. I mean, by his own admission, he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, he says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Then he says, but I received mercy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he says this. This is the Apostle Paul. Of whom I am foremost. I am the chief sinner. Nobody's sinned more than me, he's saying. You say, well, isn't he exaggerating? No. He's not. Because in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, here's what Acts tells us about Paul, who was Saul before his conversion. Saul was ravaging the church. That doesn't sound like a good thing. Ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison because they were followers of Christ. That's what he did to God's church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, verse 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles. He said he's unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? He tells us, verse 9, because I persecuted the church of God. If there was ever anybody that you would say, there's no way that person's ever getting saved. I'm sure you have some people in your lives that you've been praying for for years. And you're thinking, God, is it ever going to happen? And maybe you're just on the edge of giving up. Never give up. Continue to pray. Continue to witness. Continue to share through your life and through your lips the glorious gospel of Christ. Because you don't know when God is going to turn that switch. You don't know when God is going to reach down in the depth of their wicked, evil, defiled heart and forgive them and give them new life. That's what he did for the Apostle Paul. But not only that, Paul says, also look at the call of Sophonis. This is a man who was the head of the synagogue in Corinth. Now, remember, when Jesus was here on earth, his enemies were who? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, anybody that was affiliated a lot of times with the religion of that day, the dead religion of Judaism. Well, this man was the head. He was the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth. And isn't it interesting in verse 1, after Paul presents himself as a trophy of God's grace. He says, that's not all. It's kind of an argument from the greater to the least here. He says, our brother Sothenes, our brother. In other words, at some point, at some time, when Paul was preaching the gospel in Corinth, when he was at the beginning stages of that new formed church, this man, Sothenes, heard the glorious gospel of Christ. And it changed him. It transformed him. This is the very man who was probably totally embedded into the religion of Judaism at the time that this was going on. The very one who will be traveling now with Paul. And Paul calls him, he's my brother. My brother in Christ. This is encouraging. This is wonderful news. This tells us that there is no one beyond the far reach of God's grace. There is no one that is impossible for God to save. I mean, if Paul can be saved, if Sothenes can be saved, 
There is no one on this earth beyond the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That should be encouraging to us. Remember, Sothenes was part of the riots. He was part of the chaos that was caused by Paul. You can read about that in in Acts. When Paul brought the gospel to that wicked, defiled city of Corinth. And now here this brother, Sothenes, is reborn by the power of the gospel. He also is a trophy of God's grace. This recognized leader in the Corinthians city of Corinth, the leader of this dead Judaism, is now a follower of Christ. And he's helping Paul to actually write down the inspired words of God as he writes this epistle. Doesn't that speak to you how powerful the gospel of Jesus Christ is? I mean, the gospel can take the most sin-hardened unbelievers and transform them into servants of the gospel. I don't know about you, but that just amazes me. It takes the opponents of the gospel, those who stand against the gospel, and God turns them into the very preachers of the gospel itself. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ is an explosive gospel. It has explosive power. That's what he says in verse one, or verse 16 of Romans 1, 1, 16. Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That word power is the same word we get dynamite from. Dynamite. I don't know if you've ever been around dynamite or seen somebody blow something up with dynamite. I remember watching as they were taking down the Bay Bridge, the remaining parts of the Bay Bridge, and they'd have those explosions going off. Incredible power and just one stick of dynamite. Well, I trust that the, the power of the gospel has exploded in your life as well. I trust that the dynamite of the gospel has been deposited by God into your heart and that you have received it by faith and that is radically, it has radically transformed your life from what you have been to what you now are becoming by the grace of God. Someone said this, if your religion hasn't changed your life, it's time to change your religion. That is so true. Our world, our churches are filled up with religious people. We don't need more religious people. We need people who have been transformed by the glorious gospel, by the power of the gospel of Christ. Because when it's the real thing, trust me, beloved, it will change you from the inside out by the power of God. Well, Paul and Sothenus were both standing before the Corinthians as trophies of God's Grace. They're a living example of the power of the gospel. What it looks like, what it smells like, what it tastes like, what it feels like when God gets a hold of someone's life with the power of the gospel. You become a new person in Christ. 
There was a man who lived in the 1800s. His name was Sir James Simpson. In 1847, he was considered Queen Victoria's favorite doctor. And he was, lived in a town in Edinburgh. He was Scottish, I believe, Ivor. He discovered the use of chloroform as an anesthetic during surgery. That's what he discovered. He was probably one of the most brilliant minds Western civilization has ever produced. He was just brilliant. Some claim that this discovery was the single most significant scientific discovery in modern medicine. I'm kind of glad they did that. I don't know if you've ever had a surgery. I've had a surgery, and I'm glad that they could give me anesthetic. I mean, can you imagine going through a surgery without any painkiller? Feeling every cut, every pull, every tendon that's being torn from your body? Well, when he was lecturing later in life at the University of Edinburgh, a student is reported to have asked his professor this question. He said, of all the discoveries that you've made, what would you consider is the most valuable discovery? And he clearly replied quickly. He said, my most valuable discovery was when I discovered what a sinner I am and what a great Savior Jesus is. He was a believer. He also wrote in his personal testimony He said this, but again, I looked and saw Jesus, my substitute, scourged in my stead and dying on the cross for me. I looked and cried and I was forgiven. And it seems to be my duty to tell you of that Savior. To see if you will not also look and live. How simple it all becomes when the Holy Spirit opens the eyes. See, that's the heart of the gospel. When you begin to see what a wretched sinner you are. When you begin to understand the wages of your sin is death. And then you come to what we know to be that glorious, grace-giving, sin-forgiving Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. That should be encouraging news for us. Because here are two individuals. Paul and Sophonis who... For the most part, people would say there's no way. They're out outside of God's grace. They're beyond the reach of God. But God reached down from heaven and he arrests their soul. He literally takes them hostage by the power of the gospel. He calls them to be his own. He not only saves them. This is just incredible. But then he uses them. For his glory, for the furtherance of that gospel message. Only God can do such a glorious work as that. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, well, you know, I'm the only one who's a believer in my family. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. Maybe you don't have a lot of Bible knowledge Maybe you're considering yourself as having arrived late to the party of salvation. And you're asking the question, how could God ever use somebody like me? I just tell you to look at Sophonis. 
Look at how God used this man. He's writing down the very words of God. At the direction of Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. A man who was hardened by dead religion. Head of the synagogue in in Corinth. This foul, wicked, evil city in the ancient world. Now he's a man who's taking dictation of inspired words from God's servant, the Apostle Paul. And he's traveling with the Apostle Paul side by side. Well, it's no accident that Paul starts off his gospel, that starts off this epistle to the the Corinthians by putting on display God's trophies of grace in his own life and also in the life of Sothenes because now he turns his attention to the call on the Corinthians. You know, the Corinthians were saints because God called them to be saints. We're saints only because God called us to be saints. Nothing within ourselves makes us saintly. Receiving the call of God is throughout all Scripture. You can just write these verses down and look at them later. I'll just read a couple. Ephesians 4 says there in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Colossians 3.15, And the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. 1 Timothy 6.12 says, Fight the good fight of faith, take hold of eternal life, to which you were called, Paul writes. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priest, a priest, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence excellencies of him who what called you out of darkness into his marvelous light if you're thinking here this morning well i would have eventually figured it out if you're thinking here for a moment that somehow that it was you who made the decision to come to christ and it was you who who figured it all out in your own ingenuity you're wrong because the bible says you needed to be called by god That's the only way you will be saved is when you receive his calling. In Jude 1, it says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at this calling. And before we do that, I want to look at what we call in theology the ordo salutis or the order of salvation. I went over this with the men on Thursday night this last week. And it's such an important thing to understand as Christians, that God has a plan and a purpose here. It's not just some willy-nilly thing that he throws out there and says, well, I hope you find out the way of salvation. This is the order of salvation as we find in Scripture. First and foremost, you have the foreknowledge or the predestination or the election by God. Ephesians tells us before the foundation of the world, he chose us. Before the foundation of the world, he decided to set his love upon us. Before the foundation of the world, before we were ever even a twinkle in our mother's eye. God set us apart. This is God's choice of some onto salvation. And then you have, secondly, 
what we're going to look at today, the effectual call, or we'll call it regeneration, or you can call it the new birth if you want. Alongside of that is conversion, the idea of repentance and faith. See, all these are necessity elements of salvation. And then you have justification. We just talked about that, the declaration of a right standing before God. And then adoption, the idea that God not only just justifies us, but then he says, hey, welcome to the family. You're part of my family now. The first one happens before we're ever even around. The second four, two, three, four, and five, effectual call, conversion, justification, and adoption, happen the moment we come to Christ. The moment he saves us. All four of those things happen. And then the life begins. The Christian life begins. Remember I said justification is the dot. Sanctification is the line that connects to the dot moving forward. Well, part of that line is sanctification, that growth into holiness, and also perseverance, or the idea that we're going to remain in Christ. And then the last thing there is glorification. That happens at the return of Christ. We receive our resurrected body. Well, today we want to look at these call. There's, there's basically two calls found in Scripture, or three, some say, when it comes to our salvation. First of all, you have a general call. A general call means it's just an external call. It's, it's the call of the pastor. It's the call of the preacher. It's the call of the Christian proclaiming the gospel. Then you have what the Bible calls the effectual call. It affects something. It's the internal call of God on the human soul. It's God's sovereign drawing of a sinner to salvation. That's where regeneration happens. That's where new birth happens. And then some people say, well, there's also a third call. There's the call of the sinner. Because if God affects his call in your life, then you will, as a sinner, call out to who? Call out to Christ. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. You'll understand what it means to be lost. Let's look, first of all, at the general call, the proclamation of the gospel, the external call, the gospel proclamation. In, in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, Paul writes this, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, when Paul speaks of the divine calling in Romans 30, he's not talking about the general call. He has in mind here God's effectual call, and we'll get to that probably next week. The effectual call is when God sovereignly summons the sinner out of spiritual death into spiritual life. That's salvation. As a matter of fact, the New Testament, whenever it speaks of a divine calling, in all the epistles, in all the letters, other than the Gospels, whenever you see the word calling or call, it's always referring to the effectual call, not the general call. It's, effect, it's, it's, it's calling the, talking about the believers coming to Christ. Now, the gospels speak of another call. That is the general call or the external call, the gospel call. 
This refers to the verbal proclamation of the gospel by which all sinners are called to turn from their sin and trust in Christ for salvation. You know, sometimes today as believers, we'll say things like, well, I think I'll go out and share the gospel. I mean, that sounds so nice, doesn't it? I just, I just want to share something with you. That's okay. But that's not what Paul had in mind. <laughs> because, see, that kind of takes the gospel message and lowers it down to this nice little story. You have to understand, the gospel is a call unto salvation. The gospel demands obedience. It's not just a little willy-nilly story you're sharing with somebody. When you proclaim the gospel of Christ, you are proclaiming the human heart to turn from their own sinful ways and to turn to the glorious Christ who offers forgiveness of sin. See, there's a distinction between the call of God, the internal call, and the call of the preacher, the external call. The internal call is given only to the elect. And the internal call always brings the sinner to salvation. Always. But when you give an external call, when you just go out and proclaim the gospel... See, that's why I didn't put the external call as part of the order of salvation, because it's not there. For the saving benefits of Christ's redemption are always and only effectually applied to those whom he chose in eternity past. Because the external call of the gospel is the means by which God issues the effectual call. But why do we have to have this? What's the necessity of the external call then? Well, Romans 10, 13 tells us. Romans 10, 13 declares the external call is essential for a sinner to be able to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not going to be able to be saved unless you hear the gospel. Romans 10, 13, look at it. Turn in your Bibles with me and just follow along as I read this for you because you really need to see this. Romans 10, verse 13, he says, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Boy, we love that verse, don't we? Amen. And we stop short. Look at what verse 14 says. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him of whom they have never heard? And how are they able to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, verse 16 says. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through, what's it say? The word of Christ, the gospel. See, that text clearly indicates that proclaiming the message of the gospel is absolutely imperative for anyone on the face of the earth to be saved. And you probably read, I've read 
some accounts of people, well, yeah, you know, there's, there's people over somewhere in some part of the world and they're just saved. They're, they're saved without even hearing the gospel. Don't you believe it? That flies in the face of these very words from the Apostle Paul to the Romans. It's absolutely essential for us to preach the gospel of Christ. That's why, you know, when I hear Christians say, well, you know, I I don't want to preach to people, so I just live my quiet little Christian life, and hopefully, you know, they'll see something different. That is not sufficient. That's not what we're called to, brothers and sisters. We're called to go out into the dark, sin-stained world and not just live for Christ. We're called to proclaim the message of Christ, to penetrate the darkness with the glorious gospel of Christ. Sin has so penetrated the the very core of man's being. We are a sinner not only by choice, but by nature. We're born with sin. And because of this, God's revelation of himself in the natural world is sufficient to render all inexcusable guilty before God and to convict men of their sinfulness. That's what we see in Romans 1. They don't want to deal with God. So what do they do? They they invent their own God. They suppress the truth. Do you know that the solution to the damning spiritual condition of mankind is not found in natural revelation? It's not found by the sinner looking within himself. Sometimes I'll witness to people and they say, well, yeah, that's nice, you know, but I'm just, I'm just trying to find myself. It's like, well, when you do, let me know. Because <laughs> you're not going to like what you find. I'll tell you what you are. You're a sinner. That's what the Bible calls us to. Calls us from the very beginning. You're not going to look, you're not going to find a, an answer to this damning spiritual condition in which we find ourselves in your own resources. You're not going to figure it out. See, for salvation to come to anyone, the gospel message of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God sent from heaven to save sinners by grace through faith apart from works has to be proclaimed. That's the only way people will be saved. In 1 Corinthians, turn over there, verse Verse 1 there, just a couple pages to the right, verses 18 to 21. The Apostle Paul says this, For the word of the cross is folly. It's a mockery to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Verse 20, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The gospel message is a joke to those who have yet to be saved. But that's what we're called to preach. 
And when you begin to mess with the message of the gospel and begin to say, well, I'm going to make it a little more relevant or I'm going to change this up or I'm not going to use the word sin or the blood of Christ or I don't want people to feel bad. You're not presenting the gospel that God calls us to present. See, the word of truth is the means by which God brings about the new birth. James 1.18 tells us that. Peter in 1 Peter one twenty three says, you have been born again, not, listen, of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You can't be saved if you're not going to share, hear the gospel, if you're not going to be able to share the gospel with people. He also says there in verse 25, and this word is the good news that was preached to you, Peter says. So gospel preaching is a prerequisite for salvation. It has to happen. Because it's the means of the message preached that sinners are awakened to new life. That's why Paul says, it's the power of God for salvation. It's by the foolishness of the message preached that God is pleased to save those who believe. So we must send preachers to preach the gospel. We must be preachers who preach the gospel. And by the way, all believers, all Christians are called to be preachers. Maybe not in the official capacity. But we're all called to proclaim the gospel of Christ. Well, what are the elements of this external call, this general call that God gives to all the world when he proclaims the gospel? There's three of them. The first place, the gospel preacher must explain the facts of God's holiness. You have to understand, first of all, that God is holy. He's not the man upstairs. He's not grandpa. He is set apart. He is onto himself, the most holy God, the only God. You have to understand that, that you cannot stand before God in his presence as a human being. He's the creator of all things. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. God is creator of everything. He's perfectly holy. He's separated. Matthew 5, 48, we're told, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You want to get to heaven? Guess what? You have to be perfect. Any, any qualifiers here? Anybody qualify? Anybody here want to say they're perfect? I don't think so. That's why we trust in a perfect Savior. That's why God gives to us, he imputes to us the perfection, the righteousness of Christ, while at the same time imputing to Christ all of our sin. That's the great exchange at the cross. He is the essence of all that's good. So much so that he can have absolutely no fellowship with anyone who falls short of moral perfection. 
1 John 1, 5 says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Not just a little smidgen, nothing. He is perfectly bright light. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That describes the human race. And yet, Scripture declares that all people have sinned against God by breaking His law and therefore fall short of that perfect standard of righteousness. He pronounces the verdict in Romans 3.10. He says, There's none righteous, no, not one. Don't even think of it. He says in 6.23, Romans, For the wages of sin is what? The wages of sin is death. Why is that? Because sin against an infinitely holy God demands an infinite punishment. It's not just physical death, temporary death, but it's, it's spiritual death. It's eternal death. The just punishment of all sin, the Bible declares, is simply this. It's simply hell. That's the just punishment. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 50, it says, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And pl- in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not a story. This is reality. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me food, gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me, Jesus says. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it unto the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Or in Revelation 14, verse 9, it says, Another angel, a third, followed him, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or its hand, he will also drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured out, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur and the, in the presence of the holy angels in the, and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark on, of his name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. See, into those conditions, the grace of God steps forward. His sovereign grace. And even though we are helpless under the weight of our own sin, there's no way that we could ever even think of paying the penalty and escape the judgment. Then God the Son becomes a man. 
God the Son, Jesus Christ, comes down on earth to live a perfectly righteous life that the sons of Adam had failed to live. And not only that, he came to live a perfect life, but then the Bible says that he came to the cross to die a substitutionary death, a death that you and I could not die. Even if we were nailed to a cross and gave up our life, it wouldn't be good enough. Why? Because God demands a perfect sacrifice. And as I said previously, none of us are perfect. Christ died on that cross as a perfect sacrifice. He absorbed in his own person the full penalty of the wrath of God, the Father, against their sin. Even though he had committed no sin whatsoever, he hung on that cross and he became, the Bible says, sin for us. Somebody asked me one day, well, why did Jesus ever even have to be born? It's very simple. Jesus had to be born so he could die. Because the Bible says that God cannot die. God cannot die. So God had to come down and take on a human body so that he could secure our salvation by dying, by giving that up on Calvary. After dying in the place of sinners, he was buried. The Bible says on the third day he rose from the dead, triumphant over sin and death. It says then that he ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. That is the glorious gospel of Christ. That's the the gospel that saves You will not come to Christ unless you hear those essential words. With that being said, believing the facts of the gospel was absolutely essential to salvation. Unfortunately, that's not sufficient for salvation. That's not enough. Because James chapter 2 verse 19 says, guess who believe? The demons believe. They understand the gospel, but they're not saved. See, for a sinner to have a saving interest in Christ, he must respond to these facts by what? By turning from his or her sin and turning to the glorious Savior of Christ to secure his righteousness. Because God is absolutely holy. Secondly, The second essential element of this external call, this proclamation of the gospel, is not just that God is holy and the man is sinful and Christ's work provides an answer. But you also have to extend an earnest call for the sinner to repent and believe. It's not good enough just to say, well, you know, go read your Bible. No, you have to extend, not just proclaim the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and the work of Christ in securing our salvation. But you also have to proclaim the gospel and then tell people, you need to repent. You need to believe the gospel. That's what he did. Jesus did in Mark chapter 1. He modeled gospel preaching. He proclaimed the gospel of Jesus. He said, "This the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. See, the gospel is not a suggestion. 
It's a command. You don't have the option of saying, well, you know, whether I believe the gospel is not really important. (laughs) Your eternal soul weighs in the balance. But you have to not just proclaim the gospel, but you also have to give people that earnest call to repent, to turn from your sin to the Savior, to believe in the gospel of Christ. See, only by repentant faith may a sinner lay hold of the benefits that God in Christ secured for us. I mean, it's the only hope of salvation we have. Do you understand there's not many roads that lead to Rome when it comes to salvation? That's why Jesus says, enter by what? The narrow gate. And guess what? The narrow gate is what? It leads to a narrow path. It's restrictive. It's not the broad gate. You know, we see these bumper stickers, coexist. You ever see those in bumper cars? It's just, you're okay, I'm okay, everybody's okay. You believe what you believe, I believe what I Everybody's, it's got to work it all out, no problem. They have lost their perspective of what it means to stand before a holy God. They don't understand that they're under the wrath of God because of their sin. And there's only one remedy. There's only one hope for life, for salvation, and that's to call and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The third element here of the external call is the promise of forgiveness. Why would you want to believe? Because you can be forgiven. All the sins that you're carrying, the weight of the world on your shoulders can be relieved. As we call sinners to repent and by faith, you have to present to them the blessings that are promised to those who obey the gospel. That's what it is when you come to Christ. You're simply obeying God's command to believe. It's nothing more than that. In John 3.16, Jesus promises that the one who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's part of the gospel message. When Peter was preaching at Pentecost, Acts 2, you can read it in verse 38, chapter 3, verse 19, he issued a call for repentance. He proclaimed to the Jews the promise of forgiveness of sins. And Paul at Antioch in Acts 13 Excuse me, Acts 13 says this, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this man, through this man, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could be freed of by the law, could not be freed of by the law of Moses. When you come to Christ, he frees you from your sin. He forgives you of your sin. The greatest promise of the gospel is that sinners who have once been alienated from God are now reconciled. They're brought back into their proper relationship with him. 
It's not some cold relationship, harsh relationship. That reconciliation back into your relationship with God is so intimate. It's so intimate. The Bible says that the sinner is given the right to become a child of God. That's how intimate of a relationship we have with our God. A God-centered gospel presentation will not only proclaim the magnificent promises of forgiveness and eternal life, but will also declare that eternal life consists in the knowledge of and communion with the triune God and will present him, the giver, as the gospel's greatest gift. I don't know here this morning if you have heard the proclamation of God's external call. It's the general proclamation. It's a universal call to all who believe. That's why we send out missionaries. That's why we go out on the street and preach. We want to get the gospel out. And it's a sincere, bona fide offer. It has to be. God's credibility is on the line. But just presenting the gospel does not bring us salvation. Just hearing the gospel is not efficacious. It doesn't affect anything. Unless we respond to God's effectual call. And we'll talk more about that next week. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that you have laid out for us very clearly what it means to be called by you for salvation. And Lord, as we looked at this general call today, this universal call, the proclamation of the gospel, we thank you, Lord, that you have, as believers, you've given us a responsibility. When we leave these four walls to go out into this dark and sin filled, sin-stained world. You've called us to share, to proclaim the glorious gospel of Christ. It's the only message that has the ability to transform a life like Saul of Tarsus. It's the only message that has the ability to transform a life like Sothenus. It's the only message that has the ability to transform, to save someone like me, someone like you. We need to be proclaiming the glorious gospel of Christ, and we need to do it without apology. We need to do it with passion. For in it is the power of God unto salvation. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never heard this before. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling the conviction of God's Spirit upon your soul. I pray that you would turn to Christ. I pray that you would look to the Savior. Stop looking within yourself to solve life issues. The answer is not there. You'll never find satisfaction there. I pray that you will not rest until you rest in Christ.
If God is calling you this morning, it's as simple as crying out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a, a sinner. Save me. Save me from my sin. I want to trust in Christ this morning. If that's reverberating in your heart, you can share your, your feelings with God right now through prayer quietly in your place. You can cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He will save you when that request comes from a sincere heart. And then you will know what it means to be part of God's family. Then you will know what it means to be forgiven. To be loved in spite of yourself. To be loved without performing. Without trying to live up to some expectation. You will taste of the glorious, gracious gospel of Christ. Father, we thank you for our time here this morning. We pray that you bless our time over in the fellowship hall as well. And Lord, just give us a passion this week as we live each day for you.